My name is Lena Anderson. I am going to facilitate this presentation by Sophia Lena Bach. And I'm a writer, I'm a philosopher. I'm not going to tire you with that. I'm going to introduce um, Sophia Lena Bach. And it's a great pleasure for me to introduce her. She is an historian, and she is an associate professor at the University of Copenhagen. But more importantly, um, once in a while, uh, she comes out and shocks the entire Danish nation and changes the narrative about who the Danes are, or at least who we were during the Second World War. And for my part, I, I find it very, very healthy whenever she does it. And um, the, the two times that we've heard about so far um, was the return of the Danish Jews from the exile in Sweden and what actually happened when the Danish Jews came back home. And the second time was what happened to the Jewish children who stayed with Danish families while their parents fled to Sweden. And I know I, you're going to introduce that yourself, you're going to talk a little bit about it, but I know that that actually started more as a coincidence where you were looking for people uh, more or less asking a question, hey, did anybody experience something like this? And suddenly there were 70 or more people who had actually had a very traumatized childhood. So that is what uh, Sophia Lienbach does. And uh, your new subject is about the fishermen who helped rescue the Danish Jews and what actually happened. And we're going to listen to uh, Sophia Lienbach for about 20 minutes. And then I will open uh, for questions from the floor. Thank, Thank you. you for that lovely presentation. Can you all hear me? Good morning and thank you. Uh, just about 20 minutes, uh, but <clears throat> I'll try to make it uh, as short as possible. But uh, I'd like to go into some details and some arguments to this really sensitive topic that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, as you see, it's not that I'm going to make a, a professional presentation for you, so sure you don't have to be worried about your neck. Um, but I'm going to show a, a cartoon in just a second that really uh, illustrates a point of mine. Um, it is my privilege and great honor uh, to act as somewhat as a scholarly wake-up call this morning. Uh, as I am to present a status of the rescue on the, uh, a status of the research into the rescue of the Danish Jews in 1943. As you may all know, in the course of just a few weeks, 95% of the Danish Jews were rescued to safety in neighboring Sweden, thanks to the altruistic help and assistance of their fellow Danes. The event is rightfully world famous. Perhaps it is the only really world famous event in modern Danish history. <laughs> However, both home and abroad, the perception of the events has been clouded by a range of myths and what we might call silences. My task is to question these distortions and to offer new answers. Challenging the myths is not an academic exercise. A more realistic perception of the rescue has much to offer. Not only does it enhance the understandings of the preconditions of rescue and survival during the Holocaust, but it allows acknowledgement of personal memories that have been disregarded and neglected by the collective memory culture. Just turn this a bit. With the, but let me start with a humorous angle. Now we're going to give all the Danes a head start. That was not the wrong one. This one. 
This cartoon was printed in the popular cartoon yearbook called Svigmullen. Svigmullen is an almost untranslatable term meaning something like vicious circle. Uh, but it was printed in 1945. It was the first free issue after the liberation of Denmark. What we see here is a noble gentleman approaching the ticket office of the ferry service between Copenhagen and the Swedish city of Malmö on the other side of the Öresund. It's the narrow strait between Denmark and Sweden. And the dialogue says, to all of you who does not read Danish, the man is asking, what is the price for a ticket to Sweden? And the man behind the bar says, five crowns and 60 euro. And the man answers, that's cheap. Last time I paid 3,000 crowns. As this cartoon illustrates, it has never been a taboo in Denmark that the Jews paid a considerable amount of money for their illegal transport to Sweden. The amount mentioned here, 3,000 crowns, is at the top end of the average price of 1,000 kroner per person. The amount is just about $150 or 130 euros. But this is, however, at a time when the average hourly wage for an industrial worker was about two crowns. To get an idea of the value in present-day money, multiply the amounts by 20. Yet the question of the money is extremely sensitive. The fact that the Danish Jews paid for their rescue is rarely mentioned in international publications about the Holocaust. National debate on the issue is apologetic or plays down the consequences. The payment is often rationalized as a life that's much better, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The payment is rationalized as a life insurance for the fishermen who risk their lives, safety or livelihood in case of arrest. Or in case of destruction or confiscation of the boat. But at least for two decades, it has been widely known that the fishermen did not risk their lives to save the Jews. Neither did they risk deportation to German concentration camps. In Denmark, rescuers caught by the Gestapo were handed over to the Danish courts to be charged with assisting illegal migration. The maximal penalty was three months imprisonment on the relatively lenient condition in a Danish prison. Most cases, however, never came to court, or court officials let the rescuers slip away through the back door. Thus, the rescuers faced only very limited sanctions. The raid against the Danish Jews were implemented on the evening of October 1st, when most Jews were considered to be at their homes, celebrating the Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. The raid was efficient, well-planned, and carefully executed, parallel to raids all over Europe. But the order stipulated that it had to be concluded in just three hours. And there were no roundout of Jews after the central raid on October 1st. The 1,500 police soldiers available for the raid were never used to search for Jews or for patrolling the Danish coast. The persecution of the Jews after the raid was left to a small group of Gestapo men. That is why about half of the arrests made after the raid, in total, that's 197, were due to the intervention of one single man, the Gestapo chief in Elsinore, Hans Juhl. Fifteen persons alone were deported after an informer betrayed the Jews hiding in the fisherman's town of Gidelai on October 6th. 
So Jews were often caught by coincidence, usually at harbors crowded with people. In Torbeck, a small fishing hamlet north of Copenhagen, for example, two Gestapo agents who were tipped off arrived at the port just as a fishing boat with refugees was leaving the quay. Thirteen people were arrested that night, and five were later deported to get the ghetto to start. Witnesses at the war crime trials in Denmark after the war, however, reported that there were quite a lot of people at the harbour, among them several Danish police officers who assisted the, the escape. Danish law during the German occupation prohibited leisure boating and, on, and unauthorized traffic in the harbours. A crowd of 30, maybe 40 people in the middle of the night during curfew can hardly be considered discreet. The situation was just all too obvious, and it activated an informer who alarmed the Gestapo. The combination of the fact that the Jews paid large sums for the rescue and the limited risk of helping leads to the unpleasant conclusion that the Danish Jews were abused, that the fishermen took advantage of the desperate emergency of the Jews. But is that just a cynic rationalization made years after the event in safe and cozy distance? Obviously, it is essential to consider the difference between assessments made today and the perception of the people involved at the time who did not perceive, or did only partly perceive, the real risk of their actions. But let me turn to the perception of the Danish authorities in 1945. When they were assessing the needs and justice of compensation to victims of the general occupation, the question of the fishermen came up. Let me quote from the guidelines concerning applications to compensation for pain and suffering and indemnity for lost property. And I quote, it is commonly known that quite a few people, mainly fishermen, participated in the transport exclusively for personal gains and have had, had, and have had huge profits by the Danish fantastic ticket fares, mainly in the period around October 1st, 1943. The relation of these persons to the compensation law seems highly doubtful since their activity, to put it mildly, must be considered as ordinary business and the risk of arrest and injury covered by the prices. The Danish authorities in 1945 did not perceive that the fishermen's life was at risk in 1943, and they termed their actions as business. By then, the same authority had completed a full record of the total number of deaths caused by the German occupation and concluded that two persons had lost their lives as a direct consequence of rescuing Jews. One man drowned together with seven refugees as he was trying to row them in a small boat to Sweden. Another man committed suicide in prison after he had been arrested by the Gestapo. Furthermore, fishermen who had received payment for transport of Jews were not considered worthy of the so-called honorable gift which was granted to members of the resistance and other individuals dedicated to the fight for Denmark's freedom. But the payment can be partly rationalized. The large amount from some Jewish families were payment for everybody in the boat or for the Jews of limited means who couldn't pay. Some of the money helped financing a network of illegal rules established in the wake of the rescue. Roots carrying weapons, mail, and members of the resistance back and forth between Denmark and Sweden. And those illegal, illegal routes were an important contribution to the resistance. 
But money was a precondition for the success of the rescue. Money secured that there was enough fishermen willing to sail. The supply made it possible to transport almost 8,000 people out of Denmark in just a few weeks, minimizing the risk of exposure and arrest in hiding. When honoring the subjective fears of the rescuers and the fishermen, fearing for their lives, it is still inevitable to confront the fact that the crisis was subjected to the mechanism of supply and demand, regardless of the need for insurance for the material risk taken by the fishermen or security for the families of the rescuers in case of arrest. As the demand faded in November 1943, when the transport of the Jews were over, the average price for the crossing dropped to 100 crowns, 10% of the October price. And concluding, the rescuers operating on land on the Danish coast, finding secure hiding places, housing and assisting refugees on their way to the coast, guiding the refugees to the harbors and beaches, beaches collecting money, clothes and food supplies, they were all assisting illegal migration and faced the same sanctions as the fishermen but they did not receive payment at all. For the fishermen, desire to profit from the situation intertwined with humanitarian motives. And it is a fact that several fishermen made a living and fortune on the rescue. But what is then left of the heroism? And does recent research support or undermine the image of Denmark as being the light in the darkness of the Holocaust? The escape and survival of almost the entire Danish Jewish community is often described as a miracle beyond rational explanation. Additionally, it is commonly concluded that nor was it Nazi behavior that made the crucial difference because it was murderous everywhere. Such conclusions leave us at best with very limited insights into the causes and conditions of altruistic behavior. At worst, we have to resort to cliches of national character. But the rescue is not a fairy tale. We can document and explain it. The Danish case still supports the notion that policies did matter. The policy of the Danish government had a crucial impact. Denmark capitulated, as you may know, in 1940 and had tried extensively to comply with German demands. Yet the policy of the cooperation, of cooperation did allow for mutual concessions and the Danish government refused to accept any special measures regarding the Jews. On this point, they were in consonance with the vast majority of the Danish population. The Germans realized that any further action against the Jews would make it impossible to work for any mutual understanding between the two nations. The Germans did not have freedom of action when it came to the Jews. The attitude of the Danish government and population is, fun is a fundamental precondition of the rescue. Democracy, human rights, and a dedication to non-discrimination was a survival strategy for a small, vulnerable Danish nation. But it was not for free. Denmark actively complied with Germans' demands concerning intense exports supporting the German welfare, in expelling German Jewish refugees, and in the arrest and internment of Danish communists. They were both detached from Danish community. Danish Jews were not. Not only was the government a model example for the population, the German authorities in Denmark postponed persecution of the Danish Jews, despite pressures from Berlin, until the autumn of 1943, when everybody, including the Germans themselves, saw an Allied victory in the dim future. The timing put restraints on the Germans and explains the limited resources dedicated to the persecution. 
In Denmark, as well as in the rest of Europe, the persecution of the Jews have often been overshadowed by the celebration of the resistance movement and the victims of political persecution. However, due to the rescue in Denmark, the persecution of the Danish Jews has always been an integrated part of the commemoration of the resistance. But the collective memory didn't leave much room for mourning the death or acknowledging the racist and anti-Semitic motives behind the persecution. Focus has been on the rescuer rather than the victims. But in focusing on the victims themselves, their sacrifices and loss, new light is cast on an event that was formerly thought to be one of the best documented parts of Danish history. The perspective of the victim has uncovered that a minimum of 150 Jewish children, 20% of the total number of children from newborn to five years old affected by Nazi persecution, were placed with foster families or children homes when their parents fled to Sweden. Small children were considered a security asset, and some rescue groups refused to accept small children, and rumors circulated that children who could not keep quiet were chosen. Some children stayed with their foster families until liberation for 25, 22 months. They are the hidden children of Denmark. Many traumatized by fear and separation and difficult childhoods, they, when they were reunited with their parents, they didn't recognize or remember. These children not only felt the survival guilt so common among Danish Jews, they felt the trauma of separation shared by children all over the dissolving Europe, moved in the thousands for political and safety reasons. The children experienced being deserted twice, first by their parents and secondly by their foster parents when they returned to their biological parents. Their memories were excluded from the collective memory and repressed by the family. A large number of the children have now told their story for the first time and now receive the acknowledgement so crucial for identity and self-acceptance. In none of the cases recorded, foster families received payment for their deeds, and the children were well cared for and loved. The cases display a compassion and altruism that validates the solidarity of the Danes towards the Jews. The Danish Jews virtually disappears from the history books the instant they cross the national border, arriving to safety in Sweden, or for the unfortunately about 500 people, deported in cattle trucks to Theresienstadt. Additionally, until recently, hardly any research had been done on the difficult transition from war to peace in 1945, when 8,000 Jews returned to Denmark. Traumatized by escape, separation and deportation, reclaiming houses, possessions and positions, which has been left in confused hurry. That transition was not without severe hardship and conflict. Half of the Duke population had lost their homes. One in every five were in such a desperate situation that they were placed in DP camps or displaced person camps. 65% needed immediately economic help. The Jewish families had used their, their fortunes and valuables and had obtained loans to finance the flights or had been ruined by disregard, betrayal, and theft. But the price would have been considerably higher had the Danish authority not intensively sought to minimize the material and psychological effect of persecution. By officially taking care of the homes and property left behind, by securing clothes and food packages to the deportees in Theresienstadt, and by organizing aid and compensation on their return. And the Danish politician passed a compensation law 
that is not only naturally included Jewish victims, but Jewish victims of deportation as well as Jews in exile. And it included compensation for sole valuables or debts related to the flight and financial help to re-establishment, rebuilding and education. The compensation law of the Danish state it is, is extraordinarily inclusive and extensive and yet again substantiate the notion of Denmark as the light in the darkness. The heroic image of the rescue is not defiled neither by the policy of cooperation, by the fact of the low risk or the considerable money involved. Instead, it increases our understanding of the processes and the circumstances that generated passive collaboration rather than moral action. And a more realistic perception and a victim-based perspective on the rescue in 1943 has much to offer. It enables identification and understanding to a great extent than do the visions of heroic freedom fighters. And even if politicians and bureaucrats might not appeal to our emotions in quite the same way, they, do represent, they too represent a rescue operation, securing a home and a future after the disaster. So we can indeed preserve the power of identification and education in one of the world's most cherished stories. Thank you. that we need a government and we need authorities to, to do their job and I'm, as a writer of, of, uh, of democracy and philosophy I always write about the, uh, the rule of law which is a very unsexy subject but it turns out it, it helps once again here um, one question that I struggled with for a long time is why did the Danes care about the Jews I mean was it because they were people because they were Jews or because they were Danes? What, what were the motives behind this? Because the government must have felt something, even though they were bureaucrats, some of them, um, and the people who helped. Did, did, did you find motives in this? Um, that is not an easy question. No, um, but it's not supposed to be. Um, I think a little of both. Um, I think that some rescuers, being bureaucrats or, or everyday people, uh, rescued Jews because they were people. Some because they were Jews, because they had some sort of special dedication to Judaism or, or special knowledge of, of Jewish culture. Uh, and some did uh, rescue Jews because they considered them fellow Danes, even though, as you might have discussed yesterday, not all of them were actually Danish citizens. Uh, so, so I think the, the, the motive varies uh, from one individual to the other. But to say something concludingly, I would say that um, the motive uh, of rescuing Jews because they were considered uh, fellow Danes uh, at least has the implication that they might not be rescued as individuals or as Jews or as people, uh, but because the persecution was an attack on a group of Danish citizens and a part of the Danish nations. So it was considered an attack on the Danish nation or Danish community as a whole. Uh, so it might not matter so much that they were actually people too, families, fathers, mothers, and babies and children, uh, but that they were Danes and a part of the Danish nation. So an attack on Danish integrity. Yes, and Danish, Danish uh, values and, and Danish self-identity. 
um, singling out uh, a group of people was just not in consonance with, with the perception in, in Denmark. They were considered innocent. Uh, but we have to consider, when talking about national motives, um, that a, a substantial part of the motive might be historical anti-German feelings. Uh, this provided an opportunity for many Danes who had not been active in illegal activities before the action against the Jews um, to resist the Germans. Uh, in this sort of civil obedience way that, that the rescue was. It offered an opportunity for many types of help, lending a key to a summer cabin, or and, and, and the, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, helping uh, Jews to the beaches and harbors. So there's a large spectrum of actions possible, uh, and, and many were motivated by historical anti-German folk feelings and, and this need of action and need to demonstrate uh, resistance against the Germans. So it might not be, the point being, it might not be solidarity with Jews or with people, but with them as categories or symbols of the Danish nation. Mm -hmm. and, and we were talking in, in the previous uh, presentation about, uh, we heard about context um, and, and, I mean, the Nazis were Germans and they were not very popular in Denmark and haven't been for, for quite a while. So how much, I mean, you're, you're an academic and I'm asking you for guesswork now. I know it's not very polite, but I'm doing it anyway. So, I mean, there was part of this was more cultural and geographic uh, and nationalistic or, or had a, a national bearing to it than an actual ideological. I mean, it was more against the Germans than against the Nazis, perhaps. You will get to ask questions in a second. Though. Yeah. This is something I've monetized for years. Yeah. I, uh, I, I do understand uh, um, your point. Uh, I just don't think that it was so easy for, for the rescuers involved to actually uh, distinguish between um, anti-German feelings and anti-Nazi feelings. Because the... the the national debate in Denmark uh, was um, linking uh, anti-Semitism to Nazism and Nazism to, uh, to, to, to German, to a German thing, making Nazism and anti-Semitism German, which meant, on the other hand, that Danish anti-Semites and Danish Nazis were considered German, or inevitably they were pro-German, but they considered themselves Danish, and they considered themselves uh, formulating a Danish Nazism. But they couldn't escape the fact that the association between anti-Semitism, Nazism, and Germanness, or what we want to call it, was so close. So, so I don't think the individual rescuers actually made that made that distinction between Nazism and 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 and, and German or, or something German. But that is a really good answer. Thank you. Um, we have a mic, and uh, now it's time for questions. Yes, um, please, if you can uh, say your name before you ask the question. Here's the microphone. Thank you. <coughs> My name is Nadia Talovic. I'm chair of Humanity Action in Bosnia Herzegovina. And I have terrible cold, so I'm afraid to listen to my voice. So I find the fact that uh, a fisherman charged that huge amount for uh, a very much uh, uh, common human thing. When I say that, uh, I have to, to uh, remind you on something you said, that there are many other people who were rescuers, you know, in more 
of them were uh, those who informed Jewish people, who brought them to, to hiding, who, I don't know, enabled them some way, and they never charged anything, I suppose. So, uh, in each critical situation, you have that that that, that happenings like uh, uh, like black market. You know, in Sarajevo, that was a very long time besieged city, like 1,400 and something days, so it's a three and a half years almost. You also had similar situation that uh, some people were able to smuggle people out of that besieged uh, part, and uh, they were charging money. A lot of them are charging money. Besides, um, you know, uh, we had the tunnel uh, in, in, uh, through the city outside uh, in a free territory, if you like. So there are many people who were able, in some way, to provide packages of food for those who were inside. And they charged huge amount of money. Ask refugees in Denmark how much they paid to certain people in France and Germany to smuggle that packages to their families. <coughs> and not only that, you have a, in, a, in a market, ordinary market, you have people who were jeopardized the same way. They never knew are they going to survive next sniper. Um, they, they charged huge amount of money of just, for just one egg, if you like, or milk that was vital for little babies. So, some of them are now millionaires, you know, they, mm -hmm. they collected quite a lot of money. But my question, so, uh, for me it's not a big deal uh, that they charge that amount of money, because it is very much similar everywhere. But what if people have no money? I'm sure in, in these many cases you had, uh, you probably found such people that were in trouble to collect money. Yeah. Uh, and thank you, let me thank you first for your very nice uh, parallel. Um, yes, of course, uh, about half of, of uh, the Danish Jewish community uh, was uh, socially working class. Uh, so obviously they could not get these amount of money, uh, most of them just in a few weeks or in a few hours or a few days. Um, so this is where the point of, 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 of solidarity payment comes in, that some Jewish families that were affluent paid for the less affluent Jewish families. Uh, typically, the price was fixed for, for, for one fisher boat, and that could perhaps be 20 or 25, or in, in some cases 100 refugees on board the, the fisherman's boat, uh, but the price was fixed. So when you reach, when you reach the level, I mean, when, you, when the fisherman has got his money, you could take on refugees for free. Uh, and that is why we can conclude, and, and many uh, historians do, um, that nobody was left behind because they couldn't pay. Uh, but I don't think that in looking at the many transports, I don't think that, that the cases of people actually not paying or somebody not paying for them are really, really few. So most did pay, but others paid for them. We have a question here. Hello, my name is Stina. I'm a high school teacher in Denmark, I teach history. Um, you talk about how civil society helped a lot without getting paid, but was the average helper aware of the fact that it was fairly safe for them to help? 
that, that's exactly a, a dilemma working with this topic, uh, that it's, it's almost impossible to assess what the rescuers themselves are being uh, helpers on, on land and the fishermen, uh, what they perceived of the risk. Uh, we know something. Because um, in, in, in testimonies, often, often the, the rescuers uh, mentioned that uh, the Wehrmacht, the German army, uh, obviously was not interested in what was going on. And those were the Germans that the rescuers often faced. Uh, but they also experienced that they were not interested or looked the other way. Um, so that was one way of registering that the Germans perhaps were not so interested in what was going on. Um, but we also know that, that sometimes fear can cloud your vision. Uh, refugees speaking of planes and patrol boats on the, on, on the Sund uh, chasing the Jews. Actually, we know that there were no patrol, German patrol boats on the Ursund in, in October 1943. Uh, and we know that there were not planes searching for Jews. Um, but still, if you perceive the cold October nights in the darkness, uh, remember uh, that there was a curfew and everybody had to turn off the lights. There was a total ban on, on any lights during the night. So it was really, really dark in the, in the, in the coasts of Eurasun. And the Jewish families were obviously really scared. Because you don't leave your child behind unless you are really certain that, that it's going to be more safe staying in Denmark than coming with you on the, on the flight to Sweden. So, so it is a really strong testimony, testimony to the fact that the Jewish family feared for the, for the flight and they feared for the conditions they were going to be met with in, in Sweden. Um, so, in conclusion, uh, we know that the first verdict uh, for somebody assisting this illegal migration uh, by Danish law, uh, the first sentence is from, is from the 23rd of October. Uh, so that being so late that it, it probably did not rumor into, into uh, the rescuers' milieu. Um, but I think that we can cautiously conclude that the rescuers perhaps did not think that this was um, as, diff as, as dangerous as it was as being a saboteur of, of, of doing illegal, illegal military uh, resistance towards the German. This was a sort of civil obedience uh, and not considered as dangerous as, um, as illegal, other illegal activities. But we can't know for sure. But, but obviously, and I state that again and again and again, we have to distinct between what the rescuers perceived of the risk at the time and what we can objectively state today. But we have to let the two meet. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do in the discussion of, of, of the question of money, that even if we let the two meet, there is uh, something left. We have a question in the front row, and then we'll go to the back rows afterwards. My name is Ola Bang. I have just one question to you for comparison. Which kind of solidarity did the Danish civil society show to the communists who in 41 was arrested and many of them was later together with the Jewish ship since the Thank you. 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 Thank
Yeah, I just men mentioned it really sh shortly in, in, in my talk. Um, yes, there was no solidarity against the group of communists uh, arrested in 1941, interned, and uh, de 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 deported. Uh, at the same time uh, as the Jews was in, in October 1943. Um, the group of communists, this can, can be compared to the German Jewish uh, refugees which were expelled uh, during the German occupation, obviously before uh, the occupation as well, but there were still German refugees expelled from Denmark to certain death. Um, during the, the first year of occupation. So I think that, that, that the, the parallels between the two groups is that they were considered uh, distinct from the, the, the Danish community. They weren't part of the Danish community. Danish Jews were, and as we saw, and you probably discussed, the non-Danish Jews persecuted in October 1943 were also considered a part of the Danish community. But German Jewish refugees before the action was not, and communists were not. Uh, I think that it's safely to say that the anti-communist feelings in, German, in, the, in Danish society was really strong. Perhaps in the most strong uh, anti-communist feeling was in the, in the Social Democratic Party being in power at this time. So you might say that they, they, they used the occupation scene to get rid of political en enemies with great success. So we have to bear it in mind, it's an important example because we have to bear it in mind that solidarity in Denmark was not for everybody. Now that's an interesting point, but we will go to the gentleman at the back row here. <coughs> Thank you. My name is Wolf Kaiser from the House of Somatic Conference in Berlin. Uh, I find it interesting to compare uh, the Danish case with the situation at the Swiss border. Uh, and uh, because uh, there the Germans were hunting down Jews, uh, and I know a lot of cases where people tried to cross the Swiss border and they were caught and deported. Um, so uh, the situation was obviously quite different also because of the attitude of many uh, authorities in Switzerland uh, sending back Jews or uh, blocking uh, the, the border. Um, I would be interested to know whether uh, Danish Jews or people uh, active in the rescue operation were somehow informed about these events at the, uh, at the Swiss border. During, during the war? During the war, yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't think at all. Um, um, there was uh, uh, formally a free press in Denmark during the war, uh, but obviously it was censored. Uh, mainly by, by self-censure uh, at, at the newspapers, but also by uh, a, a, a German censor. We were getting more and more strict as the war progressed. Uh, but that's not the same as that you could not read about the Holocaust in the Danish newspapers, because you could. You could read about the, 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 the discrimination of German Jews in Danish newspapers, uh, also during the war. Uh, you could read about the persecution of the Norwegian Jews in November 1942, when Danish newspapers reported uh, of, of arrests, the mass arrests of, of Norwegian Jews. 
so you could read about the, the development of the Holocaust in the newspapers, but obviously uh, in, in, in a censured or self-censured way. But I'm not, a, I'm not to not my knowledge that they know of, of the situation bordering Switzerland. <laughs> Uh, the mind is going there, yes. My name is Jan Kirschner, I'm a senior fellow from Poland. I was just wondering, because it seems to me that the rescue of Danish Jews has become sort of a national myth. So I was wondering if this new research that you do affected in any way, and how it, how it was and how it is remembered in the Poland discourse now. Uh, ten years ago, when I said fairly the same thing as I said today, uh, not, not about the recent research, but about the question of money and how we have to, to confront the, the, the fact of the money uh, as to the fishermen is concerned. Uh, I got really beaten up. Uh, not physically, but, but many reacted emotionally and with anger, uh, with frustration. Um, and um, uh, at that time, there were still fishermen, a lot of some fishermen alive, or their children or grandchildren even were, were active in preserving the memory of their fathers or grandfathers uh, and preserving the memory of the fishermen uh, and their heroic acts uh, during the war. Um, this year, um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of talks uh, in, in, in commemoration of, of the 17th anniversary. Do we call it an anniversary? No. Yeah, whatever. Um, and um, I still get a lot of beating, um, but not as much as 10 years ago. Uh, I think that that, um, that in, in the Danish um, national culture has, uh, or, or, hist or the historical culture sur surrounding these events has opened more up to the revisionism, or what you might call it, uh, this more uh, realistic perception of, of uh, the rescue. Uh, because as I mentioned, there are still so many glamorous uh, sides to this story. There is still so much to learn, and so much to, 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 to learn, for, to, to, to use in teaching. In, in teaching the Holocaust and teaching them all the values of, of this event. So there's still power uh, and power of identification in the events. Uh, and it, it might explain why people have opened more up to the more painful sides of, of, of the events. Uh, but I don't think that the Danish audience is still not completely ready to accept the fact that the overwhelming majority of fishermen did receive payment, and they did receive a lot of money, and they did, or that is at least your, all, your individual moral judgment, did they or did they not abuse the Jews in a situation of desperation? Um, but the memory culture has been apologetic, as I mentioned. Uh, it has focused on the rescuers. Uh, it has focused on the on the part uh, and and the uh, the part of the the resistance in the rescue operation. Uh, not mentioning that most of the rescuers were not active uh, resistance members. Uh, they were everyday people uh, being angered by 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 the German persecution. Um, but, but I do believe that the image is changing gradually. Um, and, and perhaps the, the, the focus on the Holocaust in, in a Danish context and, and, and the, the interest in the Holocaust uh, as an international phenomenon might help facilitate uh, that development. I know we have the mic there, but I would like to ask you a question. Uh, it wasn't more than about two weeks ago that I saw a headline in the Danish newspaper saying the Jews are, are, are selling Denmark or will be selling Denmark 
meaning that this uh, event and other events uh, in this occasion uh, should be used for promotion of, uh, of Denmark, uh, for commerce and tourism and good image and branding and whatever you have in modern marketing. Uh, so has the Danish government used you? In, I mean, this was from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, have you been promoted in Washington or anywhere else? I have. Uh, not to my knowledge, at least. Um, was that a question? Or, yes, or it was. Just, I mean, because it was just has, you has being polemic. Has anybody used your research in promoting my nation uh, outside this country? I don't think so. Okay, really. thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Even though there's so, such good stories. <laughs> but. Um, I can't tell. No, we're, I'm sorry, sir. We got a microphone here, and I'll let you have it afterwards. Allow me to share with you a very small story told by three participants uh, during the time we talk about. Um, 20 years ago, we were a group of 50 people, uh, gathered from uh, Gilelai, the mayor, and uh, many of the population from Gilelai, <coughs> who went to celebrate this occasion in Israel. In the very northern part of Israel, we were invited to uh, visit members of the kibbutz and uh, we went two by two to have coffee with our hosts in the kibbutz. Uh, Annette and I, my wife and I, followed with uh, Gilbert Lassen from Gilelai to visit Victor. Victor was a former um, uh, studying agriculture in Denmark and um, the two elderly people were talking. I was just walking behind them and uh, Victor asked Gilbert Lassen, uh, do you know anybody in Gilelai? Yes, I'm from Gilelai. You know the merchant in, uh, in the Greifstel, small village outside Gilelai? Yes, that's me. <laughs> so you saved my life 40 years ago on the beach. Ah, I remember, he said, you were the young man who came out of the forest in the very last minute and you said, I have no money. And yes, you said, come on, we have room for you too. Yes, and I gave you a small vase, just two crown or something. Yes, and this is still uh, on my desk and I invite you to come to Denmark and so on. The man who did row the boat out to the waiting ship. He told me afterwards that uh, the reason he did row forward and backward for many hours, he said very discreet, he said to me, you know, my fine sea was uh, pregnant, so I had to earn some money. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> And your name is Thank you. My name is Eingens Mason. I, um, I teach history at the high school in <coughs> um, I would like to make a comment on your uh, Denmark promoting itself for the savior of the Jews. Uh, you might say that in the first post-war period, uh, just after uh, 1945, it was, uh, well, it was um, rather dubious where Denmark's position really had been during the war. We had collaborated to a certain amount with the Germans. We have had the, uh, the, the, uh, 
1943 uh, uh, happenings, uh, and from then on, uh, Denmark was a legitimate uh, anti-German war part. But the debate was actually was Denmark a, such a part against the Germans that we were uh, legitimate also in the new UN construction. Uh, and in this debate, I think that uh, this rescue of the Jews uh, could have played a, a, a vital part. Uh, we were actually against the Germans and we could promote ourselves as the Danish who fought back the German forces. Um, and I think we were promoted in a certain way, not, not, uh, not only in this way, but uh, when we were to be put on the right side after the war, this uh, Jewish uh, rescue from the Danish part was uh, also a really uh, great... Uh, Absolutely. Yes. Do you have a question or can we pass No, this was only a Thank you very comment. Much. You, you asked uh, whether we promoted ourselves and it, it could have been... Sure, but now I'm talking about today, I see. 2013, two weeks ago. Um, things have happened since. We need the microphone to go over here. Maybe you can stay with the microphone because otherwise we have to uh, wait every time we pass it around. My name is Sylvia I'm a teacher and I just want to... Uh, Tell you something that my mother said after the war when I grew up in post-war Denmark. Belongs to the generation who grew up with all the stories, all the myths, all the lies, all the twisting, but also talking to people who have got absolutely no reason to twist the truth, who've got no hidden agendas. My mom said when I asked her, when I asked my aunts and uncles, and my uncles were all members of the resistance, and I said, Why did you do all of this for the Jews? Why did they risk their life? Because I'm quite sure that no one went down to the fishers and said, Oh, you can go ahead, just go straight in, because they're not out there. No, you can say, No, they didn't. The fishers I've talked to, they had no idea really what was going on. They could, there could be any chance they could be captured, or they could just sail safely. But what my mother said, to get back to that, she said, Hmm, yeah, obviously they uh, were uh, murdering Jews in millions all over Europe, and the Jews, we don't think about that very much in Denmark, but they are our Jews. And I think that is so typical for the Danish attitude, general attitude, that it was not Jews, because they were just members of the society in Denmark, and, but they were our Jews. And uh, another story, where we live in the sticks down here in Bøgeskogel, Stilts, where there was a tradition that the uh, it was the Lord Chamberlain from the castle, uh, his father, I still alive, but excited, but his parents, they uh, made sure that lots of Jews escaped from Bøgeskov, a very sort of very well hidden place, a very good place, and they did not give, they did not care about getting the money. They just said this is against our principles, our values. They had to go to Sweden and got have they got money? They got money, haven't they got any money? And the fishers agreed to that because they would compensate them maybe from the castle where they lived. And uh, they would make sure that they came to Sweden. And they have got no reason to lie about this or twist the truth, if you know what I mean. So um, I just say that to those of you who did not grow up in post-war Denmark. 
I'm sure that there were exceptions. I mean, there were exceptions. Fishermen who did not receive payment, um, perhaps even uh, rescuers on land actually receiving payment. Uh, we can't uh, rule that out totally. Uh, but they are exceptions to the rule that the matrix of the rescue operation was money for the fishermen. Um, that is just that's the general conclusion, uh, and there might be exceptions to that. Uh, so, so when I meet children or grandchildren of, of fishermen claiming that they, were, they did not receive payment, it might be true, uh, but it's not, not true for, for most of the fishermen. And I would like a follow-up question on that. Uh, the, the fabric of the Danish society, the matrix, as you said, um, and we talked about networks before. What were those networks? Where was it that people went to each other to get help? And, and how do you find people to trust in a situation like that? Has any of your research found that out? Um, I do believe that, that integration did matter. Yeah, but but you went to your neighbor, mm -hmm. or you went to your non-Jewish re uh, relative, or you went to your colleague, or your friend, or the fathers, or the parents of of your children's schoolmates. Uh, you went to people you knew. Uh, so they did use their social network. They didn't use the network they had uh, because they were largely integrated. Uh, most of the Jewish community, mentioning, uh, remembering Bob Moore's um, point on, on analyzing the, the communities and the differences inside the communities. That was obviously relevant in Denmark as well. But in overall, <coughs> the, the German refugees, the, the, Nazi, the, the refugees escaping Nazi Germany, uh, even though even they were uh, integrated into Danish society, they had Danish contacts, friends, colleagues, relatives. Uh, so they did use their personal network. Uh, and let me emphasize that, that this victim perspective uh, actually gives us new, this is where we can find the new knowledge about this event, uh, because it tells us of active victims. It tells us of people uh, co contacting social, they're, they're in using contacts in their social milieu, uh, selling their properties uh, to, to attain cash, uh, trying to, to, to find ways uh, to get safely to the harbors or the beaches of, of Eurasund, uh getting in contact with illegal uh, networks that could help you to Sweden. It all emphasizes uh, the active victims. I mean, they were not passive victims of persecution. They were not passive victims of rescue. They did act themselves. Uh, and they did take active part in, in, in their own destiny and, and saving their own, own and their families' lives. Um, so that is why integration is a factor, because they actually did have social context to use. Um, so that, that's, that's one part of it. Um, uh, and they, they did what... Um, they used their imagination. Um, some of them, a lot of them, hundreds of, of, of Jewish refugees went to uh, the fishing uh, hamlet of Gidelai in the north of uh, Sealand. Uh, every day in here will know what Gidelai is, but it is a really, it's a, it has been a, a summer holiday uh, venue uh, for, for years and was too uh, during the Second World War. So they went to the harbors and beaches they knew. 
They went to Gidilaya because they knew they had themselves had their summer vacation in Gidilaya or knew somebody who had. So they went to places they, they, they knew forehanded. Uh, so, and if we integrate uh, this perception of active victims uh, in cooperation with, with rescuers, we get a much more realistic image of what was actually going on in, in October 43. Thank you. We got two questions down there, and we'll take them uh, combined, and then we'll have the microphone up here afterwards. So you first by the window. Oh. <laughs> yes, my name is uh, Christian. I'm a senior fellow and also a historian, as you, so the, though not an expert on this topic. But I was wondering about what you said about anti-Semitism in Denmark and the lack of it. And you said it was mainly because of very strong anti-German feelings. But didn't most of Europe have very strong anti-German feelings during the war? But what seemed to me to still stand out was that the Danes wanted to help the Jews, whereas in most other countries, the local population wanted also to kill the Jews. I remember reading about Lithuania, where 92% of the Jews died. And the SS soldiers, when conquering the country, almost disappointingly reported back that when they arrived to the villages in order to round up the Jews, the local population had already done it and killed them all before they even got there. Mm. So doesn't that still stand out? Even if we tone down the heroism and the money and everything, the light is still that we did want to help. Thank you. Um, can, can I, your no, question? No, I can't. Uh, yeah. um, no, well, Take the mic, please. Uh, don't watch the entire story, maybe. A uh, very simple question. You told us what... Thank you, sorry. Uh, you told us about what the rescuers knew or didn't know. How much did the Jews know or not know about what was waiting for them? Thank you. There was two can, questions. Can I answer now? Yes. Uh, first, let me thank you for, for bringing that perspective uh, into this room and this audience, because um, I, and, and I, uh, we tend to forget. Uh, I, I apologize so much, because I, I tend to forget myself that, yes, the Danes wanted to rescue Jews. I'm still concerned about trying to find out why they did that and, and which condition facilitated it. And, uh, but we still have to remember it in the large context that they did want to help Jews. Whether or not they saw them as Danes or as humans or as symbols, uh, they did want to, to save Jews. So thank you for bringing that perspective uh, to us. Um, and then the question was about anti-Semitism. Yes, because the association between anti-Semitism and, and anti-German feelings is not a natural one, obviously. It was created. It was constructed uh, during the political debates of the 30s. Uh, you, the, the association was carefully and 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 and, and the, the politicians, bureaucrats, cultural figures in Denmark was was carefully making this association between anti something anti-German uh, and anti-Semitism. Uh, so by the time that Denmark was was occupied on in on the 9th of April in 1940, it was even considered traitorous to express anti-Semitic feelings, because by expressing anti-Semitism, you express support for the German occupier, uh, thanks to this close association uh, between anti-Semitism and, and, um, and anti-German 
thing. You can't say that in English. Uh, but we have a German, German. A Danish, yeah, Germanism. No, it's not called that. But we have a term in Denmark. That's why I'm searching for words here. Uh, so if we, it's a it's a discourse. It's a construction. But it was made willingly. Uh, and knowingly by, by, by politicians and, and cultural persons in Denmark. That was one question. question. Second question, and we're running out of time. The second question was, what did the Jews know about the Holocaust? Or about persecution of Jews? Yeah. Um, they knew something, of course. They knew something thanks to family relations in Europe. Uh, they knew something thanks to the German uh, refugees in Denmark, to the part where they listened. Um, they could read newspapers, uh, even though Danish newspapers were self-censored until the occupation in, in 40. Uh, you could still read about the discrimination in Germany. So they knew uh, that discrimination was escalating in, in Germany, and they knew that, that the Nazi empire did not see a future for Jews in Germany. But they did not know of gas chambers, and they did not know of death camps. They knew of concentration camps, uh, and they knew of hard labor, uh, of, uh, of limited, really limited food in the camps. Uh, and they must have questioned uh, the seriousness of, of, of the work camp, ish, uh, work camp ish aspect of the concentration camp when they deported children and elderly people. But they, they did not know of any systematic mass murder, only of hard slave labor. Thank you. And then we got a question in the front row. And then Anna's will be I'm staying because of the timing. Okay, but are we uh, at 11 or 11.15? 11. 11. 11. Okay, thank you. Then you'll get the last question. What if I get the second to the last? Others get the last. Okay. Um, I don't. So yes, what I'd like to know a bit more about is uh, uh, what was going on within the German leadership here at the time. <laughs> Uh, you, you had the decision for the roundup, uh, I guess, um, in uh, the August time frame, 43. Um, but the execution of that roundup was done uh, in such a way that it seemed to make this escape uh, and rescue possible. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was the tip-off. Uh, there was the fact that the army didn't intervene very much in the Bundeswehr. Uh, there were no patrols as you mentioned. So my question is, why was that? I understand that before August, uh, the Germans wanted an easy occupation here. But by that time, the government had fallen. Uh, and so that notion of an easy occupation may not be the answer. So what was going on there? And how did, did was Berlin part of, of this? Or was it done locally here? And, that's a really unfair question when we've already passed the time. Um, okay, um, what we have to understand is that the policy of cooperation was not dead, even though the government had stepped down. Uh, we, we did never get a, a German or a Nazified civil administration in Denmark. It was still the Danish bureaucrats leading uh, the, uh, the civil service and, and, um, uh, and making now the, the decisions the politician had made. So uh, they were still cooperating with the German and they were still cooperating with, with, um, with the German leadership in, in, in Denmark. So uh, in real life, the policy of cooperation continued. 
So the, the, the interests of the Danes and the Germans to still to continue cooperating uh, was still there. Uh, and for the Germans' part, that was mostly securing uh, stable food supplies uh, to Germany and securing that you could keep Denmark on relatively few police hands. I mean, the resources needed in, in Denmark was limited compared to other occupied countries. Uh, so that was part of, of the deal as well. And, uh, and, and the bureaucrats, um, they, they, they took up the, uh, the line of, of the politicians uh, trying to get Denmark and get, get Denmark, Den Danish democracy safely through the occupation. So they continued where the politicians stepped down. Uh, that, is, that is the overall explanation as to why uh, Werner Best himself and, and other Germans acted as they did uh, in October 1943 because the policy of cooperation was still in action. Um, and, 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 and the timing obviously uh, being so, so crucial. Uh, being the, the, the autumn of 1943 and not the autumn of 1942. Um, what, was that the third thing, third thing question? Or uh, am I missing something? Excellent answer, and I think that we should give uh, Sophie the market right hand. Thank you very much.